So you got to make up for that lost time. And we made up for the lost time by working late and working some weekends. And that's when we got in a little bit of trouble when they came in on Sunday night and said, what are you all doing in here? I'm knocking on the door at eight o'clock at night. Uh, oh, we're just cleaning up. The guy said, if we catch you in this building again, working off hours, we will have you arrested. And they said, who's in charge? And I pointed over there to Kent. I said, that guy's in charge over there. But but so it's a double-edged sword. The government's saying, got to get it done. We're not worried about shaving all this time off you. Got to get it done, but we'll find you. But you can't work late. All right, get comfortable. This is a podcast we've all been waiting for. Welcome to All Things Wood Floor. I'm Steve Diggins. My guest today, so nice, we invited him twice, Spriglin from Universal Floors in Washington, D.C. He's brought along with him Kent Rogerson and Jamie Lambert from Low Country Floors, Pauly's Island, South Carolina. These floor pros just completed the renovation and restoration of the Andrew W. Mellon Auditorium at our nation's capital. This grand ballroom is historic, as are the floors in it, and this is a massive, ornate, and technically super advanced project. This is the master's level of flooring, so check out Sprigg's article and photos in February-March issue of Wood Floor Business Magazine, and follow along while I have the privilege of hosting the very best and brightest in our industry. With no further delays, let's get to it! Gentlemen, welcome to All Things Wood Floor. Hey, man. How you doing? Hey there. Thanks for having me, Steve. All right. So, listen, we got Spriglin out of Washington, D.C., Universal Floors, Kent Rogerson, and Jamie Lambert out of Low Country Floors. And is that uh, Pauly's Island, South Carolina? Yeah, Pauly's Island, South Carolina. We're in a tiny little spot down here on the coast. We just posted a little thing online saying that we were going to do a podcast. And usually we, we do them and they're already out and people go listen. And I said, you know, Spriggs doing this project down in Washington, and we haven't even recorded this yet, and people are going crazy. So people are very excited at Wood Floor Business about this, and people have sent in questions, etc. Sprig, I want to kick this off. You've been on here before, and of the few celebrities we have, you're one of them. So people want to know what you're doing and how you get these projects. There's a million questions. This, am I correct, is the Andrew Mellon Auditorium in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's correct. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, the... It was built about 1935, and this portion of it is basically like uh, the Grand Hall. It's uh, a little over 14,000 square feet of one room. Now, it's actually the headquarters for the EPA, for uh, the federal government. And that building, this is how big the, the whole building is. It takes up literally two city square blocks. That's how big the building is. So this particular one room, is uh, about the size of three or four basketball, average basketball courts. That's how massive it is. Whoa. So, it, this connects it, two it, units, right? It connects like the, the Bill Clinton, the Jeff, uh, William Jefferson Clinton federal yeah. building to, a, to another portion of it. This is a, a big – I want people to go online and look at the pictures. It, it's amazing the size of this facility when you look at it. it it's classic Washington. Is that what it is, Sprig? It's like neoclassical? Yes, yeah, and it's 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 one big room, and they have a you know they lease it out. The government leases it out, and actually makes a profit off of it. 
So people have weddings there and say NATO had a meeting there. A lot of, a lot of people meet there because there's no huge areas like that DC. I mean, if you look at the white house, the East room is only 3,600 square feet and that's a pretty big ballroom, but this is just one massive room with a, with a center stage. And it's kind of unique, you know, back in 35, they had a giant projector that was inset inside the stage as a brass inlay trim around it. And it actually came up out of the stage and people would watch movies, you know, a 20, 25 foot movie screen. And uh, that's defunct now, but the, the outline of it's still there on the stage. The, yeah, I saw online it said that this this facility has been used for a lot of events, and it's it's interesting because they will rent it to the public. It said it was like uh, thirty five to fifty thousand dollars plus two hundred ninety five dollars a person, and they must have some crazy parties in this thing. What where did where did it come up that they said you know what time to get these floors done? Because weren't these done twenty years ago? Well, well, the original floor. About 20-some years ago, I bid to, uh, they wanted it to be replaced. It was worn out, usually because of non-professional sanding, too aggressive sanding. It took a lot of the life out of the floor. But I bid it, and usually they go with the lowest qualified bid. So another fellow took it, and uh, he thought this was his pie in the sky, and actually put him out of business. Okay, He, He got... Two, three weeks into it, threw his hands up, said, I, I, I can't even do this job, which is a shame because usually the government does their due diligence. And they make sure you have done equal size jobs or you can handle it. But for this, maybe 20 some years ago, they didn't do that. So another company came in and uh, was a, basically a large gymnasium company. And they got it. Uh they called me back to try to the government to try to hang the first contractor, I guess, to get off the, uh, the contract. And I said, I'm, I'm not here to say I'm pleasantries. I, I didn't get the job. So I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. So the, the gymnasium fellow put the job in, he did okay, but did little to no leveling of the subfloor. Okay. And now we're doing a historic reproduction. So we're supposed to put it back exactly the way this, ornate floor was was installed the chevron and and uh, a couple curves in it so what this guy did is and i'm not going to mention him but he did his leveling with the standing machines so when the day one when that floor was done i told the government this was a 90 to 100 year old brand new floor meaning shoulders were breaking loose boards the government did not get their money out of it so that's why when we bid it, we put in bold writing, subfloor additional. We must examine, pull up the floor, examine it, and, and, and deal with it then because there's no way you can put a price on So, okay. So this this facility, I believe, was built in 34, and um, the architect was Arthur Brown. Your, was it your grandfather was an architect for the Capitol, correct? Yeah, they, they appoint architects from the capital, architect of the capital from George Washington's time till present. And you, usually they had a lifetime appointment. And they were building things on, on Capitol Hill, whatever was being built. And they overran it. And they hired everyone 
to uh, do the job. But this was in the federal triangle, they call it. So this is out of the jurisdiction of the architect of the Capitol. But a lot of times they say it built in 35, but they might not have finished it till 36, or it might have taken multiple years to build. One of the things I wanted to ask, and I don't know if we got into it the last time we spoke was, and, and people ask is, okay, you in particular, okay, Universal Floors and your background and what you do down there, how did this all, and I believe that you you go to D.C. all the time, right to the, the federal properties, and you have, what, a warehouse and a storage area. How did all that come about, and what is your actual involvement? Is everything you do on the D.C. campus, or, or are you all over the place? We're licensed in Maryland, Virginia, D.C., and West Virginia. Okay. Most of the time we step out of our zone, usually we're within a short driving distance of our shop, and that, that helps out quite a bit. But we will travel to to the ocean, to the shore, to the mountains. Usually uh, people we work with have second or third homes, and we don't mind to get a change of scenery and go out in the horse country or down what we call Annapolis, Maryland, or Easton, Maryland. And, uh, and then, of course, with historic restoration is about 25% of our business. It, it, believe me, they tice us to go everywhere. Once we went to Philadelphia, uh, the White House Historical Society owns multiple homes. And most of the time I tell them I want to stay in D.C. It's we got enough work in Washington, believe me. Uh, OK, so um, Jamie and Kent, we're, we're, at some point you're going to jump in here because you were a big part of the sanding and finishing process. Just get a little background. Is that your area, too? Are you guys do you get to work each other because you're close? Or are you guys like miles apart down there from Sprick? So we, we are about a seven, seven and a half hour drive, depending on, on how you get through Richmond from Sprig. Uh, we're all the way. We're, we're we're midway down South Carolina if you come down the coast. Okay, got it. And how did so so when, when we when when I met Kent Kent years ago, you know, I accidentally ran across him at, at the convention. He was looking at that uh, computer router, and it caught my attention. He was asking the guy all kinds of questions. I said, "Well, before I buy it, I think this guy would be a good candidate to buy it, and then I could call him." <laughs> in about six months to see see how it is but we started talking and uh you know i talked to him a minimum once a week sometimes every day right most of the time we talk about floors sometimes we talk about other things but we got this relationship where we can share information and he can give me different insight which is fantastic hey, with floor pros that's how that works i can't it's amazing what you can do it just bouncing stuff back and forth off of each other like that. For, for sure. One, one of the things that um, that I have said makes us different is, you know, as far as us as a small business, not we're not as big as Sprig is, uh, but as a small business, having Jamie and myself and then uh, our, our, our lead guy that actually runs our cruise forces, a guy named Kerry, who's got 30-something years experience, we bounce ideas off of each other internally, and we also are very – analytical picking every little process apart i mean all the way from the, the, the way a, a hose hooks up on a machine to the way you store something in the truck and everybody's always analyzing it and picking it apart and when you find a, a better process a better way then you've got somebody like sprig who's got generations of experience before us you know we've been at it for over 30 years and and some of the stuff that we think is old school he's got something from 30 years before that that his dad showed him 
and you, you run ideas past each other, and it may even make him pull out a memory from his father or, or, or his grandfather, something he learned there, and say, hey, you know what's funny? You came up with that. Let me tell you something we used to do, and then you take that information and modify your process again, and it's an it's an ever-evolving process, and, and you know, here we are, the two of us anyway, we've been at this for 31 years, and every week we come up with some way to improve it incrementally every single week. And Jamie, and, you just uh, the eye, is Jamie is just the eye candy here. He, I bet he's the, he's the brains behind all this. <laughs> like how they so how Jamie get dragged into this? Usually, I'm going to guess. Now, usually, I got a guy like you. He's the brains. That's the guy that that fixes things. He MacGyver's things, keeps everything going. You you're the man. Like how did Jamie get dragged into this one? So into this job or this, into the flooring? This one in particular, this job. It, well, it, it, no matter what Kent's doing, I'm right there with him. So when he got pulled in, I, uh, collateral damage, I came with him. <laughs> and, and Kent, that, how does this start? Does, does Sprig call you and say, son, you got to get down here, get a damn problem down in the Capitol? Or do you do that's, that's, that's a pretty solid impression. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm getting it's used not, to it. Hey, it's not 100%, but for, for just starting, that's pretty solid. Uh, so a lot of times there's jobs that are coming up. And uh, so that was actually something that was in the – uh, on one of the, 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 the memes that was talking about, uh, you know, sometimes I'm, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking about your floors, you know, and uh, there's no extra charge for that. Right. <laughs> I, I do this and I know Sprig does it and Jamie certainly does it. We have jobs that are coming up on our schedule. Right now I can think of two that are over 12 months out before we'll ever start them. That there are times where I'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm so excited about the, the jobs that are on the horizon and methods that we have uh, collaborated with, not not just other professionals, but our clients to come up with these processes. And uh, I get so excited, I can't sleep. My, my father <laughs> was a custom millwork person, right? Yes. And Jamie and I, when we were teenagers, and we're, we're in our 50s now, but when, when we were teenagers, we would be out, uh, go to the beach and hang out, and we would come back in the wee hours of the morning and my father would have the millwork shop up and running at four o'clock in the morning. Wow. And I would be like, the old man's crazy, you know? And, and turns out you, you would talk to him. He's like, hey, can you, you just won't believe this. We're, we're doing this country club and we're doing these, this circle staircase and this mahogany wainscoting. And he's, and he would be so excited about the project that he couldn't sleep. And it turns out I've, the guy that I thought was crazy. I've become, you know, turned into my father. <laughs> Yeah, there's no hey, stopping see? that, man. Yes, sir. Uh, you know what's good about both of us, both our teams, is we got one foot in old school and definitely 100% in new cutting-edge technology and methods. Yeah. So when you marry both those things together, you are unstoppable because if you got to find electricity and you can't just plug it into a, a, a socket, you're, you're out of work. You ever seen that guy with the wooden stick that goes around and finds water? The divining that, rod, that, yeah. That, that, that's Jamie when it comes to electricity. That guy can <laughs> knew look, it. Look, when they had the government uh, electrician there, and it's like, oh, my gosh. It was like he was giving out his last child or something to get him to hook up electricity. And the guy finally on the job turned a blind eye and said, you, told Jamie, you, can you do it? And he said, look, just let me get, get to work here. And that guy hooked up. They brought in a, a separate panel box on wheels 
that ran just about everything. I don't know how he did it, but he he took that panel box apart and he got us everything we needed. Now that could stop somebody dead in their tracks. Yeah, it could be single and, phase, it could be three look, phase. One of the sand one of the sanding machines wasn't working properly. Can't stop. Jamie was over there within two minutes. They tore the thing down like a shade tree mechanic, put it all back together, up running perfect. Maybe 20 minutes later, the average person stops and says, oh, we got to take a repair shop. So these guys got a talent that basically, like we have different plans, A, B, C, and D. They got backup plans, and you got to have backup machines. You got to have backup knowledge, or it will put you down in a job like this. You got to be ready to roll. You, did you check on – how do I know that Jamie's not over in the Oval Office tapping into power? Like the neighbor that tries to steal your cable, you just go out and find – Jamie, was there any water involved? Every time I had to hook up to a box, the basement's flooded. No. I'm on a 12-inch plank, and it's soaking wet, and the rain's coming in at the power unit. It, how did you find uh, this uh, – the electricity sources and know, you know what phase and then it's going to tie into everything? Were you using like power supply units – like converters, we used we used a, a 100 amp booster. Okay, good. And, and we just we I just piggied into the into the breaker box and ran. We had a long enough cable we could actually get in the center of the auditorium, and that way we you know we weren't looking for power. We we had everything right in the center of the of the room. Um, so it was to be quite honest, it was fairly simple. I was surprised that they didn't want us doing it, but they definitely didn't want us doing it. That makes sense. No, they they did the South Carolina way, but you know this building was built in 1935, so it had a few 110 plugs that most of them didn't work. With no so ground, with the, uh, with the with the bone power stations and American Standard power stations, and everything was hooked up. Uh, we we rocked it and brought in their own lights. But uh, back to this room, when you walk into this room, you are at all. Can you imagine a massive? 14,000 square foot room with 20 pillars around the perimeter, 60 foot ceiling, gold leaf everywhere, 10 foot mahogany doors. You're not only looking at a beautiful floor, you're looking, it looks like stone, but they, they made the building out of sphinx stone, they call it. Okay. It looks like gray. It, it looks like stone, but it's, it's almost have the consistency of, finely ground oyster shells and it was for acoustics and the acoustics is perfect in this building for 1935 that was like the cutting edge acoustic i don't think they produce it anymore but it actually works perfect when we do this we're going to do it right we're going to launch all this and put it on so that people can go to woodford business magazine and look at the photos we, we have some great photos of each phase of the job that you guys did which brings me to this let's get into each phase of this first of all Give me the history of this, not the ballroom, but the floor. It, it's it's an older floor. It, it, it looks like it got super worn out, and then you had to move into the scope of the work. You must, when you're bidding, it, look at it and go, first of all, this floor's got to come out. Then it has to go somewhere, a, a dumpster or wherever. And we're not talking about one dumpster. We're talking about 14,000, 15,000 feet. And then I noticed in your article you mentioned there's stone on the perimeter and it's a chevron pattern, so this isn't just some standard issue flooring. 
Um, what's the history behind, you know, what was wrong with this floor and why did this have to come about that they needed to change? Well, everything? like I said before, it was reproduced once before, but the miners were off by two or three inches. It was sanded down to nothing just to get it flat. But back in, I guess, 1935, they really laid out everything absolutely perfect. I mean, these chandeliers that are 20-some feet tall, they were all perfectly lined. The chevron was dead on, 120 feet all the way down the end of the line to these mahogany doors, and everything was laid out. So in between the pillars, and the, the diamonds, everything was laid out perfectly. But that was a double-edged sword for us. Once we removed the floor, the existing floor, and and of course we put in our contract that uh, dumpster would be provided by others, sure. which helped us out quite a bit because they had to dump it once a day. So once you get the floor up, um, they came in immediately and put up six stories of scaffolding because they had to do all the gilding work and gold leaf. So we couldn't really spend time analyzing the subfloor. So once the sub, once all that work was done, all the gilding work, all the gold leaf and the special painting. Then we got to examine the subfloor. And so everyone knows or should know, concrete takes about 90 to 100 years to get completely hard. So this building was of that age. So the guy before shot down plywood with shots. And what's it going to do with really old ply, uh, concrete? It's going to blow it apart. It's not going to hold very well. It'll hold for a little bit, but you put this heavy scaffolding on top of it, it loosened. We had to reattach over 400 sheets of plywood, hammer drill, jet glue, everything we could. Uh, we replaced maybe 160-some sheets, but uh, uh, the subfloor work took a couple months, and that was the bulk of the work was the subfloor work. The installation took uh seven eight weeks and the install took uh seven eight days the sanding but uh, we had to follow the existing pattern but the problem is that that you can't be off a 16th of an inch or you're in trouble and that that goes into strategically nailing and how we do it with manual nailers some air guns but the big curveball was, we checked it, the flooring, and it looked, we thought that we had a, a bent square or something. We said, this looks a little off. We said, nah, it can't be. And damned if that 45 was not, was not true. And then we said, holy moly, here we got to, you know, we'd get fined X amount per day for every day that goes over the a lot of time. So we got together with, uh, a secondary supplier that supplied wood premier down in North Carolina. And they came out and they stepped up and said, what can we do? What, what's your plan? It's the only plan we have is to uh, re-chop a perfect 45 with a laser Festool chop saw and then lay each row and track it off and regroove it. So we, we got into that rhythm. And that that made it roll. So, I, so my question and, would be, not to interrupt you, but this I don't want to get too far ahead of us. So, 
One of the things I've been in this my whole life, these guys are doing this. One thing that you seem to have that nobody has is this, the scope of these jobs is massive. There's a lot involved, not just pricing, but the commitment, not to mention you screw these up. You, you could be out of business. Where did you inherit the ability to get onto projects this big, this confident, bid them and get them done? That's a big deal. Well, the way I look at it, somebody's got to do it. Somebody out there's got to do it. Either somebody's going to do it and fail or someone's going to be do it in success. This particular size job, like you say, is big reward, but also there's huge risk. So you and, and hey, you can't shut down your whole business. You got other business going on at, at the same time. So that's why we reach out to other craftsmen and professionals to work with us, which, which seems to be a win win for all of us. But. You know what? We've been on very small jobs that are very complicated. But uh, the larger the job, the more you have to be organized. If you are organized and you start the preparation, it's almost like knowing a hurricane's coming. You got to prep, prep, prep. And you have to have backup and prep. And that's what we did. You know, we bid the thing two years before we started it. So we had plenty of time to prep. And then we're coming out of COVID. It's hard to get glue, hard to get nails. It's hard to get everything. And that's another problem. Well, that's, that's where I want to go back to. So from, give me this one. You've got other things going on in your life, and this pops up. Is it a phone call? Is it an email? Is it a, something like somebody, yeah, you they, know? Yeah, they, they call. They, you know, the word's out if you, you can handle something like that. And then they interview you. They okay. meet you. Okay. So my my personal background background is installing and sanding the floors. I mean, you could ask me a question. I could probably answer it nine different ways, but people know when they're talking to somebody that does the work and could handle these, these people. And, 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 and look, the government not only wants to know, can you do it? They need to know the means and methods of everything you do, how you do it, why you do it, what materials are you using, what are the alternative materials. It, it's almost just as much paperwork with certified payroll and, and the means and methods of everything. It, 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 you know, I told the government official, I said, look, you can hand somebody a book on how to play basketball. It doesn't mean that they can follow it and be a professional, but we'll, we'll follow your game here. So, Government works totally different. They, they're they're more focused on paperwork, I think. Well, you know, and, I, uh, good. And, and one other thing I want to say: you can't just put a hundred people on a job or fifty people on a job. You have to have a handful of highly skilled, motivated, dedicated people, and then you still have to be looking over your shoulder every step of the way. If someone says, "Oh, I got a hundred people," that doesn't mean anything to me. That means warm bodies. How many people are capable of executing something like this and, and, and bringing it to a to the very end? Not many. Hey, Woodfloor Pros. This is Kim Walgren, the longtime editor of Woodfloor Business. Make sure you don't miss the article the guys are talking about on today's episode or any other cool projects and articles by making sure you have your own subscription to Woodfloor Business Magazine. You can get the print or the digital edition for free by going to woodfloorbusiness.com and clicking on Magazine. 
And when you're subscribing, don't forget to also check the box so you get the Wood Floor Business e-news in your inbox every Monday and Wednesday. You'll be in the know on all the latest industry news and new products. That's it for now. Let's get back to Stephen's conversation with Sprig, Kent, and Jamie. I had a buddy of mine that did some work in the West Wing. He's a, he was a retired Green Beret. Oh, it took him forever to get clearance. They really didn't even want him in there. From the security aspect, you already have a relationship there, but there must be some type of – they got to know each one of these gentlemen and who's coming with them. Isn't there a big security and background check you got to get before you can even set foot on that property? Yeah. I mean, uh, hey, we're we're a decent distance from the White House, and and some fellows from the White House, head guys, actually came over to the job, and they know – Jamie and they know Kent by first name and they were like holy cow this is a massive job so it was nice they came over there and you don't appreciate this job until you walk in there literally you you could drop a couple tennis courts right in the middle so uh there's a lot of people that want to do it but it 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 takes a lot out of you it takes a piece of your life and and you get you know what I tell you what I'll jump ahead real quick. When they, between uh, 17 and 20 government inspectors inspected the finished product, I'm talking about the whole building. We did not have one gig, no punch out. Not one. And they said it was the cleanest job site they have ever seen in their their careers. And they said we were wondering how they're going to clean 60-foot pillars. And Kent's like, well, well, why are you worried about that? You don't have to clean anything. You just roll in whatever you want. It's, it's ready to go, which is phenomenal. You could not find – we were cleaning gold gold fleck dust. We were cleaning up everybody else. Literally, it was so clean that the company that was hired to do the final cleaning, they told them, we, we don't need it. Please go. go. We, we don't need this part of the contract. That's how that's how clean it was left, which is incredible. Of all the you've been doing, first of all, how long have you been doing this? You're multi generation. You've been starting this since you probably rode the buffer, right? How, when did you when did you start this? Yep. Me, Sprig. I, I, look, my my <laughs> birth certificate says father's occupation it says universal <laughs> floors. So, uh, I, I I went to school. Uh, I was supposed to go to law school. My brother and father called up and said, we're in kind of a semi-recession. You got to come to work. So I graduated on Saturday. Monday morning, I was uh, staying at Floors. But my father, which credited him, told us, you got to learn the trade. And I learned from these old, old school guys. And um, if you learn the trade, I'll teach you the business. And that's, you know, many, not too many bosses know the equipment and the business side, both. And uh, which, I mean, like I say, Jamie and Kent there, they can hook up, they can find electricity anywhere and they can fix any machine and dial it in anytime. And then they're running their company and running their books. So I I think it's a combination of both. You got to have both. But me personally, this is my passion. This is all I know. Uh, if you see me going anywhere, my wife gets on me about why are you always looking at the floor. I'm looking at the floor, how they laid this. Dude. I don't care where I am. Well, how could they improve? We're always how can we improve? 
be organized. So if you go back to the very beginning but, where you yeah. started, give me this. From then to this project, is this particular project, um, the Mellon Auditorium, the most complicated, most difficult, most technical, largest in scope, or is it? Is it not? Uh, it, it, it was. It, it ranks up there because there was a lot to lose. If you see, look, when, when we're we got average of seventeen guys installed on that floor, even though they're skilled guys, you know the guy in the orchestra pit with the stick. You don't think he's really doing anything? He's controlling Conductor. everything. So we got a, a overseer. Myself or someone else is constantly looking at everything because these guys get in a almost like working at a factory. They're doing thousands and thousands and thousands of boards, and sometimes they lose focus of what they're doing. So you got to constantly be just walking around and make sure every point is perfect, and you're you're good to go. You can't just turn people loose. Hey, get your job done. It's not going to work like that. Or you'll have a problem. If it starts, uh, that's why we start in the center of these huge ornamental floors. Because if it's, if, if it's going to drift left or right, starting in the middle is going to cut off 50% of your drift right there. Just like you do with a gymnasium. All right, so let's get into it. We're going to start with this project. Um, it, it, listen, you, you gotta, I, I went over the pre-draft on a magazine article that you wrote for Wood Floor Business. And this is a good one because they got a lot of pictures. You can read it online. It's just, it's very detailed. Just to look at the scope of this son of a gun is amazing. Um, I want to, we're going to go in order. I want to start right with it. Give me what happened once you got the team together, you're ready to roll, and you got to get this material delivered. Where'd you get the wood? What is, now, first of all, it's Chevron. When you say 45, are they two 22 and a halfs that come into a 45? Or those aren't right angle Chevrons, right? They're, no, two okay, 45s. Okay, gotcha. So, and how long is this material roughly? Like 33 okay. inches. And, and I, I saw online, I saw over 100 Three pallets. Three inches wide. I saw in the photo, this room had at least 100 pallets in it. How do you start by getting the material ordered, uh, delivered? Go there. Well, well, we bought it through a third, uh, a third party or a second party. So the 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 initial mill, I, I wasn't really in contact with them, but I, I went through what we call Premier, which are pretty stand up people. Um, so you 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 got to bid it with a capable mill. We went to the mill and made sure that hey, you know, they got the equipment and uh, they they can do it. Apparently, it looked like they could do it, and they did produce the flooring. And that's a lot of flooring, rift and quartered white oak. And coming out of uh, COVID, not many people even had it. Some of the other big big hitters wouldn't even bid it. They said, I, I can't I, I can't get, get this. And with Chevron, it's a whole different ballgame because if you're off just a little bit, you're it, it, it's a major problem. Chevrons, are they like a herringbone? Is there a but, female, female, or is a male, male, or is it splined? Uh, we've slip got slip tongue. Okay. tongue. It's tongue groove, and then on the ends, it's it's slip tongue. See, see, we had to correct that forty-five, so we had to micro shave one side. So it isn't like we could go all the way down one hundred twenty feet and cut it, and we could roll with it. But every twenty feet, it came to a perfect diamond. So we, you can't get headway with that. So these diamonds, we set up a jig, maybe forty-five minutes. Steve Bumpus set up a jig. And uh, 
we're cranking these diamonds out fast you wouldn't believe but uh so when we're shaving a little bit off each row and we're still keeping our points perfect and landing them by the doors by the time we got to the outside pillars on the other side of the pillars there's a 120 foot run that run dead on to 10 foot mahogany doors with chandeliers above and since we shaved a little bit it shortened it about two inches so now it would be two inches off. So now we all get together. Me, Kent, Stefan, my right-hand man, all of us, Jamie, uh, Steve Seba, uh, Mr. Bumpus. What, what can we do here? So we all got together and said, if we got to correct this, we got to extend the, herringbone, the, the chevron slat a couple inches, and we had to find the less visible area in the smallest area and that was about a eight by eight area between each pillar so we extended it there so so before that you're gonna get ahead of me there had to okay when when i move wood onto a job site here in new england first floor second floor third floor i'll get a call in a second if somebody puts an entire pallet in the middle of somebody's living room this is a government we're talking about there there must have been factors involved for that volume of material to be put in there because they have so many restrictions were were they were the engineers involved with all this well, yeah yeah so we we set up a, they made me uh set up four different i think four different diagrams and I told him how much each square foot weighed and how tall and how wide and how everything. So there's three massive parquet rooms behind this room. And that's where it was going to be stored. So it, everything was a green light. So Friday, the wood left the factory. It's going to be delivered Monday morning at 4 o'clock. The government says, we need to get some more engineers out here. We need some more information. You can't deliver the wood. The 18-wheeler is on the way. So thank God uh, my cousin Ray Lynn accepted the wood at Lynn his wholesalership. Okay. I would have been, yeah, I would have been in big trouble. So he accepted it. He kept it there until we, till the government put their little stamp on it and we could deliver to the job site. And then that's what we did. We checked the moisture and made sure it was acclimated the whole nine yards. But it was, uh, uh, there's pictures in the magazine. You can see it. It it looks like a piece of art. It's amazing. Did they send did they send 26 foot box trucks or tractor trailers? How do you um how do you get this stuff out of there and load it? They, they, they sent it in. They sent it in. And box you guys trucks. unloaded it. Big box trucks. Yeah, we yeah there was maybe 20 people unloading it. Uh, well, I got a video of it. Was it, it bundled or was it rocking. loose? I couldn't tell online. It looked. Uh, there were small, small smaller bundles, but you know you can't have a forklift there, so everything was uh, taken off by hand. And then we and then we stacked it, and then uh, while we're doing the subfloor work, it acclimated. And uh, then you know the first, you know everybody thinks, hey, what do you put twenty five guys on the job? No, the first few days, you you lay your lines out. You don't have an army there. You lay your lines, you put your lasers and your braided uh, fishing line out, and you do massive amount of, of uh, striking lines, checking lines, rechecking lines. And that's the big point. Once you get your lines down, 
You're is red. the material oh, there? But you can't it's just like go. like you listen. You go into a home and the the wood is there. You move it to one side of the house to get started. Were you able to do all your line prep work and your demo work first, or did the wood show up and now you had to move it to one side? And no, we we did our the the wood was stored in three massive herringbone rooms, historic rooms behind oh, okay. the stage. But uh, yeah, so we. we 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 got the once we got the floor up, they put up the scaffolding, and then we kind of we worked on the stage and did some other things until the scaffolding came down, and then that's when we started laying out our. But lines did you do the and, did you uh, the demo and rip out before the lines? Well, we we went there and marked where the existing floor yes. was installed, and we marked everywhere with blue tape where 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 the start was, where the center was where they did it. And then we double chip triple checked all their lines. Cause you're not going to go off mm -hmm. another man's lines for, you know, you, we wanted to make sure it was right. And that's what we did. So the, you had to be dead on. There was no room for error. Believe me, there was no room. For How did error you organize the, I mean, you one. must be at this point, there's a rip out that has to be done. That's a lot of floor to rip out. Oh, and I have a question. Since it was done when it was done, did it have cleats? I'm sure the cut nails were gone by then. What was it nailed down with when you had to go and rip it up? It, it was nailed with, because uh, it was only 20-something years ago, the guy used uh, uh, boxes nails, staples? not cleats. He Ooh, used staples. Okay. So now, now you got to pull up. A couple of the guys fabricated a, a big pole where they yank those staples up without yeah. bending over. And, and that's that's half the work right there. Once you get the floor up, pull all the staples out. And if you go into the nail, that's why we use the power nail, the individual cleat with the jagged teeth. But the last top of, if you ever look at that nail is smooth. That allows that floor to, cause rift and quarter is going to expand and contract Correctly. up and down. That allows that floor to micro move. Now, if you got a, a, a staple in there, it will hold it so tight when it wants to move, it will break right through that tongue. So that's why we, we like the, that power nail. The power nail is all. But all you were t you, this this is all concrete. Is it, It's slab, right? The, well, well, yeah, and that three-quarter inch But, but the, the actual base of this is concrete, so you had to go ply to concrete, which was there originally. I've seen a lot of the work in, in D.C. Some of it has four-foot drop floors, and they run computers and wires and cables. Probably because this is a ballroom or an auditorium. This is just flat concrete surface, and if it's that old, it must be hard as a son of a gun. So you have to remove everything that's there. How are they holding the ply to the concrete, or didn't they? Well, I, I said earlier that I, I don't know how the how the original oh. install was because I I, I I didn't get that job. I, that was the best job I lost. But but you didn't have uh, to demo the ply. It, it was probably. It, no, oh, not okay. all of it. They they wouldn't okay. they wouldn't let me. They told Good, me to okay. fix it. But most likely, they they back in that day, they laid uh, semi rough pine on a diagonal and and cut it in with cut nails and, and planks, pine, just pine uh, strips, not sleepers, just three quarter inch strips, uh, spaced about you know. Have a little tiny sure. space between it, and that's what they nailed to. And then we use inch and a half nails nail nailed that our flooring. But yeah, the, all the scaffolding loosened up all the subfloor. So we we injected it, we replaced some of it, we we took our hammer drill and 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 put it in the lead sleeve nails, 
And then we full trialed it. We full trialed the whole shooting match and nailed it. Nailed it and glued it. So, Jamie, were you, or, uh, Kent, were you trying to jump in there? Uh, I, I was just saying, as we were talking back and forth, depending on you know, what part somebody hears here, the, the, the thing that, that could easily get confused in the, in the storyline here is Spriggs replacing not the original floor. He's replacing the floor that got replaced. The original floor made it 75 right, years correct. or so. He, he was, he's replacing the replacement floor that only made it two decades. On the same subfloor is what I'm following here. Yeah, on the same subfloor. He, he was repairing the same subfloor, but the floor he took out is one that got put in and uh, just two decades ago. And because the attention to detail was not there like the original floor, instead of it making set, making it seven decades, it only made it two. That, that and some overzealous sanding. But, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the difference in the time that was taken on the original floor, dotting the I's and crossing the T's, as Sprig was telling you about the, the meticulous layout the original guys did uh, 90 years ago. It was done so well that the floor lasted you know, a, a lifetime, it lasted, you know, 70 years or plus. And then when it gets replaced, just a different mindset, going faster, not dotting your eyes and crossing your teeth quite so much. Now, all of a sudden, the floor only made it 20 years. Uh, and it just shows you, it shows you a very real world difference. Even though we got better technology now, if you're not dotting your eyes and crossing your teeth and using true craftsmen, instead of a floor lasting 70 years, all of a sudden, you're lucky to get 20 out of it. And, you know, a lot of times these guys think they're faster and better because they got newer equipment or can turn it faster. Or like Spriggs said, they've got 100 people they can put on it. But they missed the eye dots and T-crosses, and now you've got a disposable floor that you rented instead of Yeah, the first guy to get the rip out probably had the cut nails. You guys got the staples, and they'd still rather have cleats. So it was. it's up to, it's up to us. Uh, and Kent and I were explaining to these government people, and they were listening. These uh, uh, people that do historic preservation, restoration, they were really listening. They were asking pointed questions. And we were trying to bring, bring on home that a passive sanding, subfloor preparation, proper maintenance, all of this is going to give you way more bang for your buck. And, and a, a floor that's taken care of, should get 90 to 100 years no with problem. no problem. It, it, it's when somebody comes in there and he's a little bit less and he grinds the hell out of the floor and he takes the life off that floor, the historic fabric on the top. And, and that's the point everybody's got to bring across the finish line. Could you physically see, is, like I've seen that, the, it's very rare to see a floor lose that much life unless it's in somebody's machine shop and they're running sanders every day. Could you see the fasteners? Was it that that was the wear layer that gone. You could see the, the nails or the staples. They were, the shoulders were breaking oh. off. I'm telling you, they had to level that floor because one thing that was a fixed object was a coping stone around the entire perimeter and around the columns. And that was set at a certain height and you couldn't go above it, right. period. So when they were above it, they grinded the living heck out of it to make it perfect. So what we did is went around every coping stone and put our floor up to it and it better be just a hair proud and that's it and we made sure all that was close to perfect so we wouldn't be wrestling around with it at, at the end and you know there's a little tiny we had one little issue and i'm going to admit it 
nobody's perfect, but we're going into this big, massive offset with these huge doors, and it was just off by about a quarter inch for for whatever reason. I mean, we're running it straight, but visually, aesthetically, it wasn't hit right in the middle of the door. So we went back about 12 feet, took that track saw, and slowly cut it over. So by the time he got to the door, it hit dead on, and nobody's going to pick up on it. So I've noticed back in the day, the the wood floor guys cheated quite a bit. They tapered boards. They did this, but the idea is nobody knew about it. And, and that's gave me the green light. Well, you know, if I can make it aesthetically pleasing – and it's still a great looking floor. If I can manipulate that wood a little bit, then that's what I need to do. If you got a crooked wall, we, we gotta make make it look like the wall's not crooked. Yeah, can't Steve, Steve, before we but well before we jump ahead, so you were asking about the landing the job and the bidding process and all, all right. process and all that. But whenever whenever Sprig is having the conversation or he's even bringing me or whoever into the conversation about why to choose us? Why to choose this team? The example that we just dabbled into, a an original floor made it 70 years. The replacement only made it 20 years. Why? Can you explain to me the nuts and bolts of why this floor should make it 100 years? Yours is going to make it 100 years, and theirs only made it 20, right? And you've got to be able to explain that in a, in a way that somebody from the government, or in our case, most of the time, some homeowner, architect, or designer can understand it. And a lot of times what happens, especially you see government jobs or where you have a contractor that's looking for the lowest price. I tell people all the time, you can quote a floor sanding and finishing process at whatever dollar amount. Now you've got to turn around and figure out how to make that dollar amount profitable. So if you come into a house and you've given a dollar amount that was really too low and you need to make hay you got to do it quickly you're going to come in and sand way more aggressively than than you really should trying to move along faster and if you can explain to the people from the back end this is why you're replacing this floor in 20 years and you're having to start and back into it with them and explain it to them in, in a way that explain it like a sixth grader would understand it all of a sudden people are going well why in the world did the other guys not take the time to do what you're right. saying or a version of what you're saying, and you're sitting there going, well, y'all took the lowest bid, and they had to get it done fast. I assume that you know? when you leave, you so, explain so, to these people, now listen, if you don't want to go through this again, maintain it regularly, the right way. And, and don't oversay exactly. it when you don't do just, maintain Don't just let it go. You know, I think I told you guys, a lot of this hit Facebook and LinkedIn and a bunch of places. And I think you might know, is it uh, Mike Simodian? He was asking exactly that. Sprague, when you're looking at this, there's so much logistics. How do you know, or do you kind of develop it, how much manpower, equipment um, to bring into a job like this when you're looking at the scope of it? And the other side of it, especially when you're talking about the subfloor prep, there's got to be curves that you've got to prepare for that you would never – you're not going to get paid for them if you don't present them. You must have some type of safety valve when you get in and find out there are bigger problems than you thought. And, and you don't you can't just – do that at your cost. Well, you can chalk a lot of it up to experience because you're not going to lose too much money before you get wise on, on how you bid it. But you got to know your men. You got you to know the capability and you can't just push them, 
push them to work 14 hours or faster. That's that's not the, the answer. The the answer is you got to dissect that job and you got to break it down to how much in your vast experience you think that you can get done. And you f- figure the first several days are going to be a wash. That's just getting logistically lined up, getting all your stuff there and and getting your, getting your line snapped. And then what we do is we start peppering the people in once we get the process going. Once you get the process going, it's like a huge train and we can get what we call skilled production out of it. It's not just production. You got to have skilled production. But the problem is the government would come in and say, oh, here, we got someone who wants to rent this place. Uh, there, there's 20 people coming through and uh, you got to stop working. So I said, you know what it takes for a big train to stop and start? It's not like a, a, a light switch. So you got to make up for that lost time. And we made up for the lost time by working late and working some weekends. And that's when we got in a little bit of trouble when they came in on Sunday night. And said, what are you all doing in here? I'm knocking on the door at 8 o'clock at night. I, oh, we're just cleaning up. Guys, if we catch you in this building again, working off hours, we will have you arrested. And they said, "Who's in charge?" And I pointed over there to Kent. I said, "That guy's in charge over there." But, but so it's a double-edged sword. The government's saying, "Got to get it done." We're not worried about shaving all this time off you. Got to get it done, but we'll find you. But you can't work late. And uh, say, well, something's got to give. So then we started getting there at four o'clock in the morning. Then they said the EPA downstairs couldn't hear noise. And I said, well, I can volunteer and go get them some earplugs. They wear earplugs. They didn't like that. And I said, well, they're coming out of COVID. They're used to working at home. Why don't you have them stay at home for a couple of days? I said, we got to get this floor done. They were throwing every curveball they could to slow us down. But we... By the grace of God, we got it done. It so looks that, good. At that point, you're still at, at this point. In the, at this point in the story, we're at the subfloor prep, and I know since in in your article you said something about earthquake damage. They had the the capital had earthquake damage. Was that in the concrete? Did you see that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What did that look yeah, like? Yeah, there was there was big fissures, big cracks, and then they got to get the engineers out, and they got to, uh, you know, eventually uh, we put some. I pay in there and we put that plywood down and we kept on rolling. I said, you know, sooner or later, you gotta, you, you gotta keep the train going, but you know, they'll slow you down every, every step of the way. Is there a yeah. There's a lot of unforeseen things, unforeseen things that, that you don't know. I don't know, but we got to deal with them as professionals. Is there a percentage in that bidding process where they say, now, listen, we understand you're going to reveal a few things, find things, and you know, you can work with an X percentage or do they say this is your final bid and whatever you come up with, you're screwed? Or uh, no, they they do they do have a change order uh, change order okay uh, process, but then the general contractor doesn't want to do the change orders and they don't want they want to come under budget and if they don't follow the proper paperwork, then the government ain't gonna pay, so that becomes a bigger problem. So it, it's so we usually add up everything, and then you got to add a little percentage just for miscellaneous 
You really do. So when you're at that point, okay, now you're at the, the point where you're working subfloor, et cetera. Okay. You got concrete slab, you got plywood that you really can't, you have to deal with on your own. And now you're trying to get everything prepped and get ready to be there for what you do is put a hard floor down. So I'm assuming now you got to consider moisture conditions, site conditions, where that slab might be at. How is it affecting the plywood? And then did you, do you seal? I would think you take that opportunity to either lay down something or seal the subfloor system. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we rolled down some PU-280. That was a large PU-280. Is that a Vockel PU-280? Yeah, that was a PU-280 rolling party. Right I just there. used some of that stuff. That stuff's amazing. No, it, it worked nice. But um, once we got this, you know, the, the subfloor preparation turned into time material. Okay. And, and equipment value. You got to put a, 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 a value on your equipment as if you're renting it. So, so once we got the floor, the center part in, now we got to get boards that are a couple inches longer. And where are you going to go get 3,500 feet the last second? Right. So the middle did come through with the wood, but now we got Kent in the middle chasing us down to, to, to sand. He started to sand in the center part of this thing while we're still trying to get the left and right side done. You're still and installing, and there's a portion he's sanding. We we got the center. Kent said, just get this center finished up, and I'll rock it. All right, let me stop right and, there for a uh, second. I got a question about this because mentally walking through this, and it's a big project. Here's where I'm at with this. You got to get your prep. Now you're looking at the flooring, and you're going to start making decisions. So you, you, you put the vocal down. You seal off the – like one coat of that stuff will do 80%. It's almost 100% if you, if you do it twice. So now you're good to go. Now, can you glue and nail, or can you not glue because of what you've put down? No, for, no, we glue. Okay. We pull glue. Yeah, because you're not using papers. So now that with – because I know you can glue to the, the vocal product. So do you – at this point, are you – are you putting the, the sealer over your lines or are you like, okay, now we're going to lay our true lines out to get this set up? We, we laid a lot of lines, okay. a lot of different colors. But once we got, uh, uh, we still had to do a little bit of more subfloor prep, uh, touching up around the edges. So we it has went to be level. It has to be pretty was, damn level, I would think, for that. For yeah, everyone. we wanted to see what was high and what was low, and then we PU280 it. And then we went back over, restruck our our final lines and then spray a little finish over it so they wouldn't get smudged out. Okay. And then we went, went to town. So are you using, what are you using? Fishing line, kite string, lasers, old school, both of it. What do you got going in there for your lines? Yeah. That, that braided fishing line worked great. It's very thin. Yep. I mean, you don't want to snap a line and it looks like a garden hose, you know, right. that, that could really throw your points off. Sounds like a gymnasium so, layout. Same thing. You must, now you gotta be thinking, center of this facility i can't imagine starting off a side or a wall or a spline yeah, or a no, center you, you gotta, gotta start that's well, why i said it cuts your it cuts your uh drift off by 50 percent starting in the middle yes so we okay. started right dead in the middle okay good and then peeled off from there so we, we got we got the floor rocking and nailing and and fixing the 45 and cutting and trimming and regrooving every piece and cutting every piece and uh we, we get a get a get a train going so please tell me that you, you this is all your solo act, or tell me you don't have to work around other trades in this thing. Uh, there was a couple uh, gold leaf people that were 
kind of finicky. Like, like actual you know, put gold leaf on the – wow. There are gold leaf on the some of the columns and the doors. And so we're working around gold, gold leaf, unprotected stone, you name it. They, they threw everything at us. And some of these gold leaf people, they're, they're kind of unique people. They turned their classical music on and said that, you know, you can't work around them. And here we got 17, 20 people working and like right. this thing will happen. But Holy crap. You got to, I said, you know, I said, you got to go get one of those things called a zip wall, put it around yourself and uh, put, put on your gold leaf. But we, hey, we we're commandeering to all the other trades. Believe me, believe me, almost to a fault. But the, the demo I mean, the part that had to be super crazy, dusty, noisy. What I mean, and I know that's not a good gig for those people. Like, well, how did you deal with we, that? Once, once we got that floor in, or most of it in, uh, Kent and Jamie jumped on it and got their guys and cleaned that thing like they're going through a finished home. Okay. We, we cleaned the job site. We got everybody else's stuff out of there, put them out on wherever. But just get it out of our way and took control. You got to take control of your job site or the other subs, they'll walk all over you. You know, the stage had to be redone because we got ready to um, put our oil on. And then the stone guy snuck in there and he was doing some fixing of the stone and he spilled a little bucket of water. He took his sponge and wiped it all up. So he double water popped the floor. Double popped, yeah. And, 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 and somebody said, hey, the guy doubled the guy wiped it up you know with a big sponge and uh now if i wasn't there we didn't see it would have been a big problem well, we had break out of machine resand it is someone gonna pass no we, we got to do it you know Stephen, back back to it keep jumping back about how one of the ways of getting the job so one of the major concerns too you, you uh, spring's telling you about all this marble that's around the building that's literally by the time we're done, a hundredth of an inch higher than the marble. So as you sand off to it, can't touch it. They were so concerned about it. And then if you look at the pictures in here, the amount of gold leafing that is everywhere on all this morning, they've, they've just done a full restoration of that before we show up. You know, thank goodness Sprig was able to get all of his demo work and everything done. But we're showing up to something that is fresh, bright, and shiny and you can't get on it with a bristle vacuum because you'll destroy it. So there's not an option to mess up and get it dusty. So, you know, I was thinking back, I'm still back on the first question, which I know we got to move ahead, but, you know, how do you land these jobs and how, how do you, uh, you know, Sprig sitting there presenting what makes us different and why you should choose us. You know, I don't know anybody in the industry. There may be somebody out there, you know, but I don't know anybody in the industry that's any cleaner than us on sanding and finishing work. <laughs> And if there was even you know, that small 1% of dust over 14,000 feet that, that made it airborne, and even if it was that one little percent, it's a lot of dust to clean up off of freshly renewed gold leaf that can't be vacuumed and wiped on. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not as tough as you would think, or it's not as tough as I thought. I don't think people understand it. Tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I did a project like this, and they, they had the scaffolding. They had cherubs everywhere, hundreds of them. And gold leaf, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's a sheet of paper with paper, 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 thin gold leaf. They press it on, roll it on, layer after, and it's actually 14 karat, 20 karat. It's it's real gold paper, and it's pressed on to these decorative. They're not sprayed or painted or coated. Is that the same? Is that what they were using? 
I don't know. I don't know what the quantity of gold's in it, I, but it is very thin paper, like what you're describing. And yeah, it, it can, that, that's that's gold. Gold. But up in the ceiling, the sixty foot ceiling, they put what they call Dutch gold, which is very close to gold, but it's imitation gold. Okay. It doesn't keep the shine for hundreds of years, but it's a alternative. But down where we were, it was all gold leaf. And it's fragile. And that's the thing that just surprised me because not knowing, of, you know, we don't have a whole lot of gold leaf stuff in the beach houses we work in, but it's very fragile. So the idea of just taking like a round horsehair bristle brush that you would clean off somebody's uh, raised panels on their on their door or cabinets with, you can't do that. You just can't do it. So if you sit there and look at the size of the facility and what they just finished paying and to get that done, all it would take is somebody to, I don't know, have an edger bag come off. Well, we don't use edger bags, but a hose come off. Sure. And next thing you know, how do you even get it back clean? Uh, and the, the attention to detail with all of that stuff is Spriggs presenting it to the government. Again, how you land the job and the logistics of it. You're having to really back into it and convince mm -hmm. them, hey, you can do all this gold leaf first work first. You don't need to come in and try to cover and protect the floor and do it after, which is so much more difficult because we are exceedingly clean. You know, it's it, there's a it's just a big process that you're you're having to put together to actually get them to lean your way versus some company that comes in with a hundred people. You know, yeah. See, we actually brought in air scrubbers as well, so that that cuts down. That's amazing. The, my obvious question is, and I, I don't know, I just think that if people were listening, they're going to ask this. Why can't the, the gold leaf, which is so precision and so clean and pristine, why couldn't it go after you guys are done and out of there? Six foot of scaffolding. Uh, oh, oh, give me that, by the way. I saw photos. There's scaffolding in there on your work. There's other people. You're, you're using planers. You're using rotary machines. What was with all that equipment and what's with all that scaffolding? It just seemed to show up in the middle of your project. Well, they, they once the, the demo happened, they brought in the scaffolding because they had to do all the gold leaf and all these columns all the way up to 60 feet in the air. So they had to restore all the perimeter, all the, uh, you know, the egg and dart and everything, all the ornamental uh, plaster work and everything around the perimeter so they had to build it I, I said why why didn't they get one of those machines that kind of like a cherry picker and you know then i could keep on working but make i'm not part of that conversation electrical you know? electric hoist or something yeah scissor lift you, you would think so but uh I, it, they, and, and the government people were in there inspecting the gold leaf with binoculars and the guy had to tell him, look, nobody's going to look at this thing with binoculars. It's like looking at a wood floor with a microscope. <laughs> he goes, you really got to stand in normal position and, and inspect it. So sometimes they get carried away and you got to politely ground them a little bit. So I'm going to get But into hey, that floor, that yeah. floor, they were on top of it. Believe me. Well, I'm going to, we're going to get into the wrap up of the install sanding and finishing part of it, but I feel like something's missing before you get to that. And we, you, you sealed off everything. How was the subfloor? Did you have to grind it, sand the seams, rotary drive it, uh, plane it? Where, what? Yeah, every, all that, everything, anything. And then we, and then we, uh, sanded all the seams and power drive the whole, uh, plywood, everything. 
There was so much to discuss about this job that we split this podcast into two parts. Watch for part two coming soon and make sure you're subscribed to All Things Wood Floor so you don't miss it. And to read more about the Mellon Auditorium Project and see all the photos and videos, go to woodfloorbusiness.com and put Mellon, that's M-E-L-L-O-N, auditorium in the search bar. Thanks for listening.